morning, church family. Thank you, Jesusa, for the special music. It's uh, wonderful when music that we sing to the Lord actually means something to us. And uh, I could tell that that really meant a lot to you. And I hope that when we sing to the Lord, it means something to us. I want to welcome all of you here to our church, University Seventh-day Adventist Church. We just want to let you know that we are grateful that you're here to worship with us this morning. You could have been anywhere else, other churches, but you're here. You could have been at home, but you're here. You could have been off doing something else, but you're here. And not only do we appreciate it, but God also is seeing you worship him today. And he loves you. And I know that this is your worship of love towards him. Do you believe that Jesus loves you? He does love you oh so much. Now today we are going to uh, begin uh, preaching about uh, our text based preaching. We've been going through the Bible reading plan as a church, and this week it was hard to pick something to preach on. There was just so many good things to preach upon. There was the time of Israel in Egypt. There was the plagues. There was Moses, which is my daughter's favorite story in the Bible. And there was all sorts of escapes from Egypt and the opening of the sea. I mean, there were so many things to preach upon, but I mean, the Ten Commandments, you can't beat that, right? And so today we're going to be covering not exactly what happened at Mount Sinai, but we're going to be looking at it from a gospel perspective, how the gospel connects with Mount Sinai and what happened there. And so today's message is entitled, Facebook Status and the Law. Facebook Status and the Law. Let's begin with another short prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we ask for your presence this morning. Thank you so much that you have brought us here safely, and we pray, Lord, that your spirit would be upon us all as we hear from your word. In the name of Jesus Christ, we all say, amen. So the giant social network, Facebook, launched in the year, do you remember? 2000 and? 2004, actually, the year I graduated from high school. And it launched on the campus of Harvard University. But it soon spread throughout other universities and colleges around the United States. And really, the social network Facebook is quite a simple concept. All you had to do was put your picture with some basic information and have the ability to communicate with thousands and then millions of college students around the United States. But there was one feature that Facebook had from the very beginning that made it very popular. When you were making a profile, you were asked to enter your relationship status. Do you guys remember that? When you created your Facebook profile? Now at the beginning, you had two options. You could either put single or in a, in a relationship. Don't act like you don't know what I'm saying. You guys did that all. You're like, what is he talking about? Now, it doesn't seem very groundbreaking today in the age of internet dating sites. But in 2004, when college students were still putting dating ads in their local newspaper, this was revolutionary. Now you could interact with millions of college students, knowing what they look like, where they go to school, what they're studying, and if they are single or in a, in a relationship. So Facebook quickly grew, but with time comes pressure to innovate. So pretty soon, the relationship status got an update in the year 2007. Now, not only could you put single 
or in a relationship, but now you could also put it's complicated. <laughs> it's complicated. Imagine that. You're dating someone and all of a sudden they change their relationship status from in a relationship to it is complicated. Now, this became an iconic phrase to describe the rocky dating lives of teens and 20-somethings. But you know, it's never a good sign when that happens, when somebody puts, it's complicated. Now, to make matters worse, Facebook also added the option of putting married to your Facebook status. So, in theory, people could go from being married, relationship status, to being, it's complicated. And let me tell you, it happened to a friend of mine, a friend that I had grown up with. I remember I was looking at Facebook one day, and I knew she was married, and all of a sudden, the status changed to, it's, it's complicated. And I, I got worried. I said, I, it's public, right? Everybody knows it now. It's on Facebook. Maybe I should try to reach out to them. Maybe I should try to help them. But the thought came, and the thought went, and I didn't take any action. And what would you know, unfortunately, a couple of months later, on the Facebook status, it was an announcement on her Facebook post that she had gotten divorced. Oh, I felt so terrible. It went from married to complicated to divorce. And I always thought to myself, maybe I should have said something. Maybe I should have, you know, called or, or written a message and encouraged them. But Stephen didn't. But you know who did? The Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul has founded these churches called the Churches of Galatia. And all of a sudden, he hears about a change of status, a change of, of relationship. And the Apostle Paul is no Stephen Silva. He doesn't hold back. He decides that he needs to do something about this relationship status change. He needs to speak up because something is wrong. And oh, does he speak up with the most forceful words that the Bible uses in a lot of ways. When he sees a relationship status change, the Bible tells us that he begins by addressing them in these strong words. Oh, foolish what? Maybe that's what I should have done. I should have put, hey, don't be foolish. Change your Facebook status back to in a relationship. So he begins writing to them because they've changed their relationship status to, oh, foolish Galatians, who has cast an evil spell on you? For the meaning of Jesus Christ's death was made as clear to you as if you had seen a picture of his death on the cross. In other words, when I founded you as a church, when I preached to you guys, it was not dubious what I taught you. It was not something that you could not understand. It was as clear as a, as a picture. He continues, let me ask you this one question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by the works of the law? Of course not. You receive the Spirit because you believe the message you heard about Christ. So he's pointing them back to their original status, and now he's telling them something has changed. How foolish can you be after starting your new lives or after starting your relationship in the Spirit? Why are you trying to become perfect by your own human efforts? That's a change in status. And the Apostle Paul saying, that's not good. That's Worse than complicated. 
He continues, Have you experienced so much for nothing? Surely it was not in vain, was it? They had been persecuted. They had lost property. They had had a lot of problems becoming Christians. And he's saying, was all that in vain? Because this relationship status is no good. I ask you again, does God give you the Holy Spirit and work miracles among you because of the deeds of the law? Of course not. It is because you believe the message you heard about Christ. In the same way, Abraham believed God, and God counted him as righteous because of his what? Because of his faith. So what the Bible is trying to tell us here is that they had a relationship status with the law of God. The relationship status was very simple. They were only right before God. They were only righteous before God because they had faith in what Jesus Christ had done. But now, when they had received the grace of God, they decided to keep the law by their own efforts and merits. Let's bring it home to you. Because I believe that when you check your status, especially of many Seventh-day Adventists, this is the temptation. You come to a conversion experience. Maybe it's after an evangelistic meeting. Maybe someone's studying the Bible with you. Maybe you just feel in your heart that it's time to make some changes. And you know that the only way to be saved, the only way to come to Christ is by faith. And so you come to him. You confess your sins. You cry out to him. He accepts you. He washes you. He converts you. He makes you a new person. And you come out of this experience of grace in which you have done nothing but show him your need of him. And all of a sudden, you change your status and say, thank you, Lord Jesus, for your grace, for your mercy. Now let me show you by my good works why I deserve this. Now let me show you by my good works why... I can be continued to be called a Christian or a Seventh-day Adventist Christian. Am I speaking to you who began your Christian experience with joy and happiness because it was given to you freely, but now you're like miserable. Now you're tired. Now being a Christian is like a burden. It is heavy. You are tired because now you've changed your status with the law of God. Before it was grace, but now it is, is works. Now, the reason this is connected to Mount Sinai and the Exodus and the Ten Commandments was because the Bible tells us in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 1, before the Ten Commandments were given, that God tells his people there, and God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. So he's telling the Israelites, remember, I am that God that split the Red Sea for you. I'm that God that brought all the plagues upon Egypt. I'm that God that made the sea close on the armies of Egypt. Why are you free? Why are you slaves? Is it something you did? No, it is absolutely nothing that you did. You are free. You are here because of my grace only. And then he gives them the Ten Commandments. And the proper response should have been, wow, there was no way we could have gone out of Egypt without your power and grace. There's no way we could have crossed the sea without your power and grace. There's no way we could have survived the armies of Egypt chasing us without your power and grace. And there's no way we could keep these Ten Commandments. But after they have received the grace of God, 
Their response is found in Exodus chapter 24 in verse 3. And the Bible tells us that they said, So Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has said we will do. We will what? We will do. There was no way they could have gotten to Mount Sinai without the grace of God. And when God gave them the Ten Commandments, they say, oh, none of what has happened has been but our power. But now that you have been good to us and shown us your grace and power, let us take over now, God. We will do everything that you said we should do. And did they? Did they? No, they didn't. And do you? Thank you, Jesus, for showing me the, the, the Sabbath. Thank you for showing me the state of the dead. Thank you for showing me that I can only be saved by, by grace. Thank you for giving my sins. And now, I'm going to do everything that's written in the Bible in the spirit of prophecy. I'm going to do it all. Every single thing. And you start off good and strong. But what do you do? You fall. You fail. And you start feeling miserable. Because you can't measure up. And so Paul is saying, you change your status from grace to works, and you are foolish for doing that. So let's go back to Mount Sinai and see what was supposed to be the proper response of the Israelites when they received the Ten Commandments. Why did God give the law anyway? What was the purpose of giving the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai? Now, the reason that it was given was not because it didn't exist. The Bible tells us that the law and the Ten Commandments existed before Mount Sinai. Romans chapter 5 verse 13 says, But sin is not imputed when there is no law. But was Adam imputed sin? Yes or no? Yes. He was a sinner in the Garden of Eden. Thus there was a law in the Garden of of Eden. So why did God give the Ten Commandments again in Mount Sinai? In Genesis chapter 26, verse 5, it says, Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge and my commandments, my statutes and my laws. It existed before Mount Sinai. Again, in Exodus chapter 16, verse 4, it says, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day of manna, this is before the Ten Commandments are given, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or, or not. So have you ever questioned the Bible and been like, why did God give the Ten Commandments in Mount Sinai if the Ten Commandments already existed? And why did he have to give them again? And not only did he give them again, but he gave them in a new way. In fact, he gave them in an awesome way. He gave them in a majestic way. He gave them in a way that can't even be compared to anything that has ever happened on earth, except maybe there's only one thing we can compare the Mount Sinai giving of the Ten Commandments experience to. The only thing as I looked in the Bible I could compare this great event to was the second coming. 
He didn't only give the Ten Commandments again, he gave it in a powerful way. The Bible tells us in Mount Sinai, there was what? Fire. Exodus chapter 19, verse 18. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in what? In fire. Again, we read about the second coming in 2 Thessalonians. He will come in a flaming what? In a flaming fire. We learn that in Mount Sinai, the angels were present. Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 2. And he said, the Lord came from Mount Sinai and dawned on them. He came with 10,000 of saints. From his right hand came a fiery law for them. We also learn that the same thing will happen at the second coming in Jude 14, 15. Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his of his saints. I mean, there's no other event that could be compared to the giving of the Ten Commandments other than the second coming of Jesus. Why did he give the commandments again? And why did he give it in such an awful, awesome, majestic, glorious way? Again, in Mount Sinai, there was a trumpet of God. And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him by voice. And we know in Matthew 24, verse 31, talking about the second coming, and he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heaven to the other. And there was also the voice of God in Sinai. These words the Lord spoke to all your assembly, and not only to Moses, but to all the assembly he spoke, in the mountain from the midst of the fire and the cloud, and thick darkness with a loud voice. Can you imagine the loud voice of God? I mean, I'm speaking pretty loudly here. And I know some of you sometimes complain and say, hey, can you tell the sound to put it down a little bit? He's a little bit too loud. Can you imagine when God speaks loudly? Can you imagine being in Mount Sinai and seeing fire and smoke? See, hearing the trumpets angels, and the Bible says that the same thing will happen at the second coming, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and the voice of an archangel. And also an earthquake. Some of you have heard of these cold vortex earthquakes that are occurring nowadays, that the, that the, that the water in the ground freezes and it starts to shake the earth. Well, you're going to feel the earth shake at the second coming of Jesus, as it shook on Mount Sinai, the earth shook. The heavens also dropped rain at the presence of God. Sinai itself was moved at the presence of God, the God of Israel. Hebrews 12, 26 says, Whose voice then shook the earth, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more, I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. So we see that the only event that could be compared in the Bible to the giving of the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, the giving of the law again, is the second coming of Jesus Christ. And my question is, why did God give the law again? And why did he give it in such a powerful, majestic, in a way that no human being had ever experienced, had ever seen? Imagine if you were in Mount Sinai. Maybe we should put ourselves there. Maybe that will help us to answer the question. You come to Mount Sinai. 
You can't touch it because you die if you touch the mountain. And all of a sudden, you see fire consuming around the mountain. You see smoke. You hear trumpets like you've never heard in your life. And you hear the voice of God loudly. You feel an earthquake. And you hear commandment number one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. And you see the glory maybe of angels peeking through that smoke and maybe the little bit of the glory of God in this majestic scene. What is your natural response? I tell you what my natural response would not be. Oh yeah, that law, I could keep it. No problem. Do you know what that scene would make me want to say? Help me, Lord, there's no way I could keep this. You are too glorious, you're too powerful, you're too good, I am not. I am not worthy. God gave the law in such a powerful, majestic way to give you a sense of awe of how great and grand the law is and how you are so little in power to keep it. And so why was the law given then? If I can't, of my own efforts, keep it. Well, Romans chapter 5, verse 20 says, Moreover, the law entered, the offense might what? Abound. Another says that sin might abound. Now, it doesn't mean that the law is bad and makes sin. No, the law is good. It says, therefore, the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. It's not that the law makes sin. It's that the law reveals sin. God's law was given so that people could see how sinful they were. Romans chapter 5, verse 20. Because we have a tendency to think that we are better than we really are. And more spiritual than we really are. That's why we could come up to the mountain and say, I want to change my status from grace to works. I want to keep it. By my own strength. Because we think we're stronger, better, more spiritual than we really are. And so God had to give the law again in this mighty way to make us feel small and say, there's no way. But what does it do? It shows you how sinful you really are. We need that sometimes in areas in our lives. I know in January, lots of people went to the gym and I remember hearing people sign up for the gym thinking, I'm not really that out of shape, am I? I mean, come on. Maybe you thought that as well. I'm not that out of shape, am I? You, you know, when you look at yourself in the mirror, your eye does like this trick on you, right? Like you look better in your own eyes than you really are. Like even if the clothes is getting tighter, you know, and not fitting as well, you look at yourself and you're like, ah, still looks pretty good. I look nice. But then you sign up to the gym. And you go to the gym that first day, January 1, 2, whatever it is. And you look around and start comparing yourself to the others there who've been going to the gym all year, not just January. And you say, huh. Hmm. The mirrors here must be different than my house. Huh. You know, you're in the elliptical for 15 minutes. And then you say, I think, I think that maybe, I think that maybe, 
I'm not in good shape. And you go to the person who's in good shape and you ask for some advice. How can I get like you in 15 days? Can you give me some advice? And they're never helpful, are they? Like, they're really never helpful. Like, the personal trainers are like, yeah, give me $100 in 15 days, you'll have a six-pack, right? But the people who've been working, like, their whole lives out, working out, they're never helpful. They look at you, like, at first, they, like, look at you up and down, and they go, this has taken me 20 years to get like this. In other words, it's impossible for you. And, and when you see those big muscles, when you see those guys walking around, you just feel like there's no way I could ever do that. And that's what the law at Sinai was. It was powerful, it was big, it was majestic, it was glorious, and the whole point was, I can't. But there was a purpose for why it was given, to show you how out of shape you are. And that's why Paul's saying, why'd you change your status? Don't be foolish, <laughs> you were, in grace, and now you think you could climb that mountain? You can't even approach that mountain. If you even touch that mountain, you die. That's how unable and unworthy you are of reaching righteousness by yourself. And so, so that through the commandments might become, so that sin through the commandments might become exceedingly sinful. So there is a purpose and place for the law to show you how not only sinful you are, but how exceedingly sinful you are and how you can't reach the mark. And the worst part about it was that for sin is the sting that results in death and the law gives sin its power. So not only does it show you that you're exceedingly sinful and that by your own strength you can't climb that mountain and keep that law, but there's more bad news. It also leads to death. It also leads to death. That's why I'm smacking myself in the head and saying, how could they say, all you said we will do? What was their problem? Their problem was too much self-confidence in their own abilities, their own strength, and their own power. The law is good. It shows us what we need to see. It shows us that we are sinful, exceedingly sinful, and that that sin leads to death. So, is it all bad news? No, it's not all bad news. Because Deuteronomy chapter 33 tells us this, and he said, the Lord came from Sinai. He came with 10,000 of his saints, and from his right hand came a fiery law for them. Oh no, that fiery law, it is showing me I'm exceedingly sinful, it's showing me how small and I can't keep it in my own strength, and it is showing me that it leads to death. But the next verse, the very next verse says, yes, he loves the people. All his saints are in your hand. Why did he give the law? To show you how exceedingly sinful and how impossible it is to, for you to, to reach that summit by yourself and keep the law. But was that a mean thing to do or was that a loving thing to do? I think it's a loving thing. I think it's a loving thing. I know as a nurse, it's loving to tell people when we find something wrong in their body it's actually against the law to keep people's results from them 
and not show them that, hey, there's some treatment options that you can have here. I remember that one time I had a patient that was diagnosed with cancer, and he was still all there. He was elderly, but I mean, he could talk to me. He could have a relationship with people. And the family kind of approached me and said, oh, he's so old, and, and, and I, please don't tell him that he has cancer. You know, just, just hold it back, and, you know, we'll, we'll decide, you know, among us what we do. And I was like, absolutely not. It's my responsibility to tell the patient what's wrong with them so that together, them and the doctor, they can decide on the treatment, not you. God's here saying, I love you so much that I need to show you how exceedingly sinful you are and how impossible it is for you to become righteous by yourself. He loves us. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. And it did abound exceedingly. Listen to this. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much what? Much more. Ooh, now we're getting in the good stuff. Because Mount Sinai wasn't only scary, he wanted to show us our exceeding sin. And you can only see the exceeding sin through the law. Because where there is exceeding sin and abounding sin, there's even more grace that super abounds. That's why I love the law. That's why I hug the law. Not because I could keep the law by my own strength, because the law shows me how Wicked and exceedingly sinful I am. And when I see my condition, then I am introduced to the super abounding grace. God's grace in your life. That's why Mount Sinai was such a beautiful experience. So that as sin reigned in death, even grace might reign through the righteousness, through eternal life, through Jesus Christ our Lord. John chapter 1 verse 17 tells us, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through who? Jesus Christ. But let me tell you, this didn't happen way later. This happened at the same time. Because at Mount Sinai, you could find Calvary. At Mount Sinai, where the law was given, you could find God's super abounding grace. And when I found this, what I'm about to share with you, I was blown away by God's love and grace towards us and towards the Israelites and to those foolish Galatians who keep changing their status from grace to works. You see, a thing you need to understand to understand what I'm about to share is that Sinai, Mount Sinai, is the same thing as Mount what? Horeb. Let's say that again. Sinai is Horeb. Sinai is Horeb. So when you read in the Bible, Mount Sinai, and then you read Mount Horeb, they're the same mountains. You know, sometimes things have two names, or people from different places call them the same thing. Let me give you some evidence of that. It says, Thou stoodest before the Lord thy God in where? Horeb. When the Lord said unto me, Gather me the people together, and I will make them hear my words. And he declared unto you his covenant, which he commanded to you, for you to perform. Even the what? Ten commandments. And he wrote them upon two tables of stone. So according to this verse, on what mountain was the Ten Commandments given? But it's also Mount 
Mount Sinai. It's the same thing. But you know what the Bible tells us also happened at Mount Horeb, which is Mount Sinai? Listen to this. In Exodus 17, 6, when Israel was in the desert with no water and they were dying of thirst, the Bible says that they were literally dying. That was the end for them. That God told them, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in what? Or Mount Sinai? And you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it, that the people may what? Drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders, and when he struck that rock, what came out? Life-giving water. So I want you to capture this in your head, okay? When the fire and the thunderings and the smoke were on top of Mount Sinai and Mount Horeb, and when God's voice thundered down the Ten Commandments, and when the angels were moving up there and the earth shook, and the people could not even approach the mountain or touch it lest they die from that same mountain was also flowing, life-giving water. There was the law, and there was the free gift of life. And the Bible tells us, and that rock was what? Christ. Oh, I don't think you got it. That hit me to the soul. Because when the law was presented, how exceedingly sinful you are, how it's going to lead to your death, how you cannot keep it by your own strength and power, and the people could not even approach it. You can't climb that mountain. But you could get life from the water flowing out of that mountain. You can't become right by climbing the mountain by yourself, but God, that rock that was struck and his blood flowed out, and if you by faith receive his blood, it is life and righteousness to you so that you keep the Ten Commandments, not by your own strength, but by faith in the righteousness of Jesus Christ in you. So what do you want to do? You want to try to climb that mountain by your own strength? It's impossible. You know how impossible I think it is? A couple years ago, there was a man who decided to climb Yosemite Mountain with no like the, the Yosemite cliffs and rocks with no ropes. I forgot how many hundred or, or thousand feet it was. And imagine climbing the roof here with no ropes. That man climbed like, I want to say like a hundred of these <laughs> up in the air. Rocks that were like this and like that with, with no rope, free-handed. There's only one man that did that in the whole world, ever. And there's only one man who could climb Mount Sinai and keep those commandments perfectly. And that man is Jesus Christ. But that man is also the rock that was struck from Mount Sinai, from which life-giving water came. And that's where you can go. Not to the top, but to the water. And receive his righteousness, his commandment-keeping righteousness in your life, not by your works but by faith in his righteousness in you. So you don't have to be miserable. You don't have to be scared. 
You don't have to be under the burden of the law. And you don't have to be a fraud and say like the Israelites, all this I will do. Because it's a burden to say all this I will do when you can't do it, isn't it? It's not the right way to live. It's not. That kind of living reminds me of this woman called Elizabeth Holmes. Have you guys heard of her? Elizabeth Holmes seemed like the next star in Silicon Valley. We read that at age 19, she decided to drop out of Stanford University after only two semesters of chemical engineering. And she went to found a company called Thanos, uh, Thanos Diagnostics. Uh, it was a lab company. And this was her claim to fame. She proclaimed to the world that she had discovered the technology where they could, from one drop of blood, do 200 diagnostic tests on you. So instead of going to the doctor and getting, you know, vial after vial of blood drawn and then tested, all you had to do, get one prick, one little tiny drop of blood, and they could run all these tests on you. Wow. Everybody put her on their magazine cover. She blew up. And we hear that many people invested money into her company. The owners of Walmart invested over $100,000. The owner of Fox News and Wall Street Journal invested over $100,000 in her company. We learned that uh, the DeVos family, which is now the Secretary of Education, also invested hundreds of millions of dollars. And in less than 10 years, she had gone from a 19-year-old starting a company of nothing to being valued at $10 billion. $10 billion. This wonderful technology from one drop of blood. They could do 200 diagnostic tests. They made a contract with Walgreens that every Walgreens would have one of her machines so they could run tests for all the people that came into the Walgreens. That was a $150 million deal. There was just one problem. She had lied. That technology didn't exist. Can you imagine how miserable she felt every night going to sleep? That she's going out there giving interviews on television, the magazines and newspapers, claiming this wonderful technology from one drop of blood. And there's millions of dollars invested in her company. There's billions of dollars of worth of the company. People around the world are starting to, to use it, but it's just giving false results and not real results. And she knew that sooner or later, they would find out that she was a, a fraud. That's the experience of many Christians. When they are presented with God's law, they said, I can do it. I can do it. And they're letting everybody know, I can do it. They're letting God know, I can do it. But deep in their hearts, they know they're not doing it. And they can't do it. And Jesus is coming with the blood from the rock that was struck and saying, change your status, oh foolish East Lansing church members and visitors. From works to grace. So that you will no longer be a fraud. But you will be righteous commandment keeper. Because you're doing it by faith. Not by 
by works. So how does this happen, Pastor? Uh, how do I do that? How do I change my status? Uh, I feel like I'm also not measuring up. I feel like I'm not doing what I need to do or should do. It's not complicated. You do it the same way that you found salvation. You get on your knees. You confess your sins to Jesus Christ. You tell him that you can't keep his law by yourself. But you ask him to send his Holy Spirit into your life so that the life you live now is not in the flesh, but in the, in the Spirit. And in his mercy and grace, he will send that Holy Spirit into your life. And that Holy Spirit power will lead you to make decisions which you could never make of yourself so that you also become righteous. But not your righteousness. As the Bible says, the Lord God our righteousness. It is His righteousness. And so what I'm asking you this moment, this evening, right now, to do, is to pull up your Facebook spiritual profile in heaven and change it. Not from its complicated, I'm divorced or works, but to I'm walking by faith in the Spirit, keeping the commandments. So you will be happy and free and full. Who wants to change your status today? Anybody want to change their status? Amen. Let us pray for that. Dear Heavenly Father, oh Lord, that mountain is very tall, very big, very powerful, very grand. We know that your life-giving water also flows from that mountain. Let us approach your Ten Commandments in the right relationship, in the right status, not trying to keep them by our self-works, but keeping them by your righteousness given to us in faith every day of our life. I pray that for everyone here. In the name of Jesus Christ, we all say, Amen. Amen.